All right. We have spent the last couple of weeks reading from the book of 1 John, which I've told you is not as much a letter. It kind of reads a little bit more like an essay than a letter. It's, it's not addressed to anybody in particular. It's kind of more of an essay. It's an essay about the message of Jesus, written at a time when the Apostle John is elderly, likely the very last of the 12 to be alive. And there's a lot of talk about, well, what did Jesus really say and what did Jesus really mean and what did Jesus really stand for? And and the Apostle John is kind of saying, okay, everybody, I was with him. I was with him. Here's here's the real deal. Uh, In the first chapter, a couple weeks ago, we heard John remind us that the message of Jesus brings eternal life to those who receive it. And then in the second chapter, he helped us identify uh, what that actually looks like in terms of what does a genuine relationship with God, the kind of relationship that yields that eternal life, what does that relationship actually look like? And we've recognized that along the way, he has this tendency to write in very, very direct, unnuanced terms. He's often painting things in black or white. It's either this or that. There is no shade of gray in the middle. We're not going to complicate the matters unnecessarily. He's trying to keep everything as uncomplicated as possible. Now today, what we're going to do is read through the third chapter of his essay, which addresses our confidence in the future that God has promised us. Promises are all well and good, but what really is the issue is, can we be confident in the promise? How does the future that God has promised actually play out? How can we be assured that we're on the right path? What signs should we look for along the way to let us know we're headed in the right direction? It actually reminds me a little bit of Uh, a time and an era that I will remember, and if you're my age or older, you'll remember it as well. We'll have to explain it to some of the the millennials and Gen Zs in the church family. But do you all remember going somewhere you'd never been before, driving somewhere you'd never been before in the days before GPS? Before you had a nav system or a Google Maps or something, you were just going somewhere you'd never been before. And so you got some directions from a friend and maybe you wrote them down on a notepad, but you got yourself in the car. And then you realized the direction said something about like get on such and such a road and drive for about 25 minutes and then you'll see it. Do you remember how unsettling that was? Have I gotten there yet? Did I miss it? Did I see it? Uh, You know, the problem is you were looking for something, but you didn't know precisely what it was that you were looking for. And Siri was not there yet to tell us, turn right ahead, turn right ahead. Recalculating, recalculating. Yeah, there was nothing to recalculate because we were just kind of going on what we had been told and hoping, hoping that we were on the right path. And, and we got on those, especially those longer stretches back in those days. What if it was at night and we couldn't see as well as we thought? What if the weather was bad and we couldn't necessarily know for sure that we had seen the landmarks? Do you remember going through intersections, like trying to read, what was the name of that street? You know, I should probably look it ahead, you know, but I, I don't know where I am. Had we missed our turn? <laughs> Yeah, there was the issue of stopping and asking for directions, but that's another issue that we'll address another day. Um, You know, but you, you live on the journey with these questions. Am I going the right way? 
Am I even on the right road? Have I missed my turn? How will I know it when I see it? Should I keep going forward? Should I turn around? What am I going to do? I feel like this next chapter that we're going to read a little bit, uh, that we're going to read together is a little bit like John trying to give us some landmarks to look out for along the way. He knows that we're on this journey. He knows that we've talked a lot about the destination, where we're headed, where we're going. But now he has to say, but here's some things to look out for along the way so that you can be confident that you know you're on the right path. So let's read uh, 1 John chapter 3 together. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 
The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Whew. John sounds awfully confident, doesn't he? He sounds very, very confident. But you know what? I think we all know what it's like to have seasons of lingering doubt. Can we start by acknowledging that? It's been said that people look to religion to find answers to all of their questions. But in my experience, that's just not the case. In, in my experience, faith isn't actually a very effective way of me getting answers to all of my questions. It's more about me learning to trust that I don't always need to have the answers to the questions. But that's kind of where John starts his argument. He wants us to understand that our future isn't a concern as long as Jesus is in it. A lot of people are concerned about the future. A lot of people have questions about the future. What's going to happen next? How is this going to go? How is this going to be resolved? In John's day, just like in ours, people had a million different questions about what the future held. And especially, ultimately, what eternity holds. What actually happens to us when we, when we die? John has written about eternal life, but could we get a few details, please? What does that actually look like. When you proclaim a message about eternal life, where you proclaim that the gospel says that death doesn't have the final word, well, obviously that's going to lead people to ask some clarifying questions, right? Where is heaven? Why can't we see it? What will it actually be like day to day when we get there? Uh, what, what will we like? I mean, is this what I'm working with in heaven or does God have something a little bit better in store for me? How will it be the same as life now? How will it be different than life is now? And these are the kinds of people, uh, these are the kinds of questions rather that people are asking. And John's not given us too many specific answers, isn't he? He simply says, what we will be has not yet been made known. With regards to your questions about what this eternal life is actually going to look like, he says, uh, yeah, we're operating on a need-to-know basis right now, and unfortunately the Holy Spirit has determined that we don't yet need to know. I can tell you this, I've read not only the book of 1 John, I've read the rest of the Bible, as many of you have. If you've read the rest of the Bible, then I'm sure you'll agree with me, the rest of the Bible doesn't get too much further down the road in terms of specific answers about those kinds of things either. There are a lot more questions than there are answers. But John does have this one very, very important assurance for us, and I've highlighted it on the screens. It's in verse two. He says, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We, we don't know exactly what life will be like. We don't know exactly how this whole heaven thing is gonna feel or look or sound. There are a million things that we don't know, but there's one very, very important thing that we do know. So let's start there. John says, we know that we shall be like him. For about six weeks following his resurrection, Jesus walked the earth in a resurrected body. And John saw it. John touched it. John smelled it. He was there with him for, for six weeks. In many ways, John recalls that Jesus's body after the resurrection 
was not too terribly different than what it was like before he died. Uh, we know, for instance, that his friends immediately recognized him. We know that uh, he ate in his resurrection body. We know that he functioned more or less like you and I do. He even still carried scars on his body from the crucifixion. Isn't that interesting? This resurrected body of Christ, and yet it still bore the scars of the crucifixion. But there were some other ways, some very important ways, in which Jesus' resurrected body was, was very, very different. Uh, some scholars have speculated that Jesus didn't need to sleep after the resurrection. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but what I do know is that the Gospels refer many, many times to Jesus resting or Jesus sleeping before his, his death. But after the resurrection, we really don't have any references to that. It's kind of an argument from silence, but people have speculated maybe the resurrected body didn't need any sort of restoration. Maybe it didn't need any rest. Some of you are like, I'm kind of living that way now. Um, maybe I'm already resurrected. I feel like I'm already dead. Uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe. I can tell you some things we do know. There were some odd things that happened relative to Jesus' body after the resurrection. Sometimes he would appear. Where'd he come from? Sometimes he would disappear without notice on the Emmaus Road, right? He's talking with people and they finally figure out what's going on and then suddenly he's just gone. It appears that the laws of physics didn't seem to apply in quite the same way to the resurrected body of Jesus. And John is saying that after we experience physical death, when, when sin no longer rules over us, we will be like Jesus. That's, that's what he said. But here's the thing. I don't think that John is just talking about physical bodies. I think he's got an even more profound mystery in mind. Hear him again. We will be like Jesus. Like Jesus. Jesus. I mean, isn't that the journey of discipleship? Isn't it Christ-likeness? Isn't that what we've been working on in this life? The lifelong journey of transformation, John says, will finally be complete. Sin won't even survive as a memory. It will have no place in our life at all. Brokenness will be gone. Shame? Irrelevant. It won't even matter anymore. Every wound we've ever received in mind, in, in, in body, in heart, every wound we've ever received will be healed. We will be like him. The eternal future that awaits the people of God is filled with mysteries more amazing than we could ever imagine. Our physical life, we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, our bios life, it will be restored. Our bodies will be transformed. Things that we couldn't know or things that we couldn't understand now will suddenly be possible for us. The laws of time and the laws of physics will no longer restrain us. Thank you very much, Dr. Einstein. Uh, but the miraculous news of the gospel is that all of those things that I just kind of vaguely described, the, the things that we can't possibly even conceive of, all of that stuff won't be what amazes us. Uh, it's not even worth thinking about or trying to imagine 
Because all of those things will be a side note to the real story. Don't bury the lead, John says. We will be like him. We will be like him. It's just not as complicated as it sometimes seems. In Jesus, our future is secure. We will be like him. The destination that we're searching for in our journey, uh, we can be confident that we will arrive. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to do along the way. When the Martinsons go on vacation, one of the decisions that we have to make is how are we going to get where we're going? Are we going to drive or are we going to fly? And over the years, we've done both at various times as a family. There's a lot of different criteria that goes into that decision anytime we go somewhere. Where are we going? What's the schedule? What's the time frame? What are we gonna need when we, when we get there? And probably the most important thing is the budget, right? We have to determine, are we all gonna drive or are we all going to fly? I can tell you that I am an impatient traveler. It is not my gift. I do not have the spiritual gift of travel. And because of that, I do not like the unpredictability of the airport. I don't like sitting at the gate. I don't like going early. I don't like finding long lines at security. Uh, I don't like finding out that the flight has been delayed. I don't like getting on the plane and then finding out that it's been delayed. That's not a blessing at all. I don't like the unpredictability of the airport. But you know what else I don't like? I don't like lengthy drives. I don't like being in the car for a long time. I'm really looking for a third option and I haven't come up with a good one yet. Here's what I've discovered though. The biggest difference between the two modes of transportation for the family. When we fly, once you do get on the plane, I can sit back, I can watch a movie, I can eat my pretzels, I can put my headphones or AirPods in and, and listen to some music, or I can even try and take a nap. The journey doesn't really matter to me at that point. In fact, on a good flight, ideally, we ignore the journey entirely <laughs> and just kind of you know, wake up when we arrive. That's a good flight. But it's very different when I'm driving. When I'm driving, I have to stay alert the entire time. I mark the miles as we go. I have to know how far we've gone and how long before Siri is gonna tell me to take the next exit. I have to watch for landmarks. I'm responsible to keep the vehicle safe. I'm responsible to keep the vehicle on the right path. And it occurs to me that the Christian lifestyle is a lot more like driving than it is like flying. The destination is important, but there are things happening along the journey too, and we have to be mindful. We have to pay attention. Jesus isn't just waiting for us to arrive. Jesus is working on us and with us as we travel. And John puts it this way. He says, Jesus secures our future and transforms our character. Jesus is doing two things. He's securing our future and transforming our character as we just discussed. Heaven will mean big, big changes for us. But what many Christians don't realize is we don't have to wait for heaven to see the promise of transformation. We don't have to wait for heaven to see the promise of eternal life. Actually, can I give this in a correction mode? We shouldn't wait for heaven. A transformed life is is an important road sign we should encounter on the journey to heaven. John addresses the issue with his typical, typical bluntness. He says, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. In other words, if your life isn't changing, you're not headed the right way. 
kind of blunt, isn't it? If your life's not changing, you're not headed the right way. I think most people understand at some level that our actions, that our habits, that our lifestyle, these things are relevant if we claim to be Christians. And pastors like me try to make it clear that our actions don't save us. We don't get to heaven by obeying all the rules, right? But that doesn't mean that we can go through life ignoring the ethical implications of God's word. Character matters. It matters. The problem is that many of us seem to think that our particular character flaws are either too strong or too deeply ingrained or too much a part of who we are. That Jesus either can't or doesn't want to bother addressing them this side of heaven. We think or, or we say, well, this is just how I've always been. We say, I, I, I could, we look down the aisle at the saint at the end of the pew and we say, I could never be like him. I could never be like her. We say, that's just not who I am. Who do we think we are? The power of Jesus is stronger than my bad habits. The power of Jesus is stronger than my poor upbringing or my Irish temper or my anxiety disorder. It's stronger than my history of abuse. It's stronger than my addictive personality. It's stronger than all of those things. If you're in relationship with Jesus, if you're journeying on toward the promise of eternal life, then Jesus is transforming your character. There are no complicating factors, John says. It just is happening. The Bible says God loves you just the way you are. It never says God leaves you the way you are. If you're in relationship with Jesus, he is changing you. But look, you and I have some responsibility in the matter too. It's our job to give those changes an opportunity to see the light of day. We can't just talk about transformation and wonder why it's not happening to us. We have to take the initiative to step out in faith and live it out. Because, and I want you to put this in your outline, a transformed character knows that talk is cheap. Transformed character knows that talk is cheap. John identifies love as the primary character transformation that takes place in the life of a Christian. If we are in a relationship with Jesus, we are going to love one another. John says it's not complicated. There's no gray area in between. This is a black and white issue. If we are in relationship with Jesus, we are going to love one another. But let's remember that in the Bible, love isn't a, a fuzzy sentiment that we feel. Nowhere in Scripture, I hope this is a release to you, as it's been a release to me at various times in my life. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell me, when Jesus comes into your life, you're going to feel warm and fuzzy about everyone you ever meet. <laughs> oh my goodness, can you imagine if that was the litmus test of a true relationship in Christ? about everybody I, I've ever met. Um, can I confess to you that sometimes people really tick me off? That, 
has as much to do with my brokenness as it has to do with theirs. But God didn't zap me and just give me the warm fuzzies for everything. Sister, I love you. Brother, I love you. Could we just hug a little more? Could we just hug a little? No, no. That's not what's going on here. The Bible says that love isn't a warm, fuzzy sentiment. The Bible says that love is a powerful impulse that expresses itself with selfless behavior. Verse 18, I already read it, but I'm going to reread it. Let us not love with words or with speech, but with actions and in truth. Sometimes I think that when Christians uh, come to faith in Christ, they expect that the Holy Spirit is going to give them some sort of lobotomy. And suddenly they're going to find themselves inexplicably going on mission trips. Maybe they're going to be visiting orphans in the hospital or giving all their money to the church. Actually, that one would be okay. (laughs) Wait, no. Rewind. Edit that one out in post-production. But you know what I mean? Sometimes we get into this place where we feel like there's some sort of out of body experience, that that's what transformation means. Like suddenly the Holy Spirit takes control and I just must follow 10 commandments, must assimilate into Christian community. And that's not how it works. Jesus transforms your character, but you and I are still in charge of our actions. We're still responsible for those things. I'll give you an example. I have told you from this pulpit many, many times that I do not like hot dogs. And when I say I do not like hot dogs, I'm being as polite as I possibly can. Hot dogs and I have an extremely adversarial relationship. I do not like hot dogs. I don't want to taste them. I don't want to smell them. I don't want to see them. And I don't want to hear about them. Am I making this clear how I feel about hot dogs? I can't overemphasize this too much. I do not like hot dogs. Let's pray and we'll have a dismissal. Father, oh wait, no, I had more I needed to say about that. I'm sorry. I say that I don't like hot dogs, but the truth is, are you ready for this? I have no idea whether or not I like hot dogs because I haven't actually eaten one for about 40 years. All I know for sure is the last time I ate a hot dog, it didn't go well. It is possible. It is possible that God has completely transformed my taste buds. It is possible that hot dogs and I have reconciled. It is possible that any one of those things could have happened in the last 40 years. I would have no way of knowing because I still refuse to actually eat a hot dog. Do you understand what I'm saying? People complicate the issue of Christian character because they're waiting for God to remote control their actions. And when he doesn't do it, we worry that maybe we miss something or maybe our faith isn't genuine enough or maybe God's still holding a grudge against us for something that we either realize or maybe worse yet, don't even realize. We behave like we've always behaved because we assume that God just hasn't transformed us the way he's transformed others. But here's the uncomplicated direction that we get from John. If you are in relationship with Christ, then you are being transformed. So start acting like it. 
I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Start acting like it. Stop cussing. Start giving. Find a place to serve. Make church a priority. Read your Bible. Worship like you're at a football game. Tell others about your relationship with Jesus. Uh, Take care of widows and orphans. Live like Jesus lived. Love like Jesus loved. And maybe, just maybe, try a hot dog. Oh, I'm not doing it. (laughs) But you know what? The other things in the list, the sanctified things in the list that aren't actually of the devil like hot dogs are, you might discover that God has transformed you and you just didn't realize it. One more quick thought before we put the bookmark in John's essay for this week. I'm sure there are people here today who would say, Dan, I hear you. I hear you. I'm tracking with you. It all sounds logical, but I'm telling you, I've tried it. I've done all of the things. It just, it didn't take. Never felt like I fit in. God and me, we just, we just never connected the way I see God connect with, you know, you know. I just don't think I'll ever become this transformed person that John is describing. I want to tell you this, if that's maybe how you feel today or how you felt at any given point. I want to tell you that the enemy of our souls wants to do anything that he can to keep us from living into this eternal, God-transformed, empowered, Zoe life that comes by way of the message of Jesus. He will do anything it takes to stop us from becoming who God has designed us to become. And oftentimes, his most effective weapon is guilt. It's a weapon of choice for the enemy, right? Guilt, guilt, guilt. He uses guilt to make us feel like we don't measure up. He uses guilt to make us feel like it'll never happen for us the way it happened for so-and-so. He uses guilt to remind us of our darkest moments. He uses guilt to point out that even when we tried to serve Jesus well, we tripped and we fell and we covered ourselves with the disgusting dirt of sin and failure all over again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He uses guilt, doesn't he? He uses guilt. Here's the thing. Here's why guilt is such an effective weapon. It's effective because it's based in truth. Here's what I mean by that. Stick with me for just a moment because I think I just got a few, huh? (laughs) Here's what I mean by that. When the enemy reminds me that I'm a sinner, he's not lying. When he points out how badly I've struggled to live a godly life, he he doesn't have to embellish. I know who I've been. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought and kept hidden in my own heart. I know. And even for me, after living essentially my entire life with Jesus, I know how fallen I still am. I am a mess. And so on any given day, I'm prone to come to God with a guilty conscience. And that's all the devil needs. He didn't have to lie. (laughs) He didn't have to exaggerate. He didn't have to make things up. He just has to remind me what I'm living with. But here's what the devil doesn't want any of us to remember. God's forgiveness is more powerful than a guilty conscience. God's forgiveness is more powerful than a guilty conscience. Did you catch that line just at the end of what we read today? John said, if our hearts condemn us, 
So stop right there. If our hearts can, if, if our hearts, when Jesus, my heart condemns me. Maybe not as often as it should, but often enough, I am aware of my own sinfulness. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. We know that God is greater than our hearts. Can I tell you this? You cannot trust your own objectivity. You can't. You might think you're the greatest thing God ever created. I got news for you. You're not. You might think you're the worst sinner ever to walk the planet. I got news for you. You're not. You can't trust your own self-image. You can't see yourself the way Jesus sees you. You can't see yourself the way the Father sees you. You don't know who you are in Christ until you start listening to God. Until you start listening to God. You see, you might not feel forgiven, but God says that in Jesus you are. You might not feel lovable, but God says that in Jesus you are. You might not feel worthy, but God says that in Jesus you are. You might not feel redeemed. I prayed the prayer, I submitted my life, but I'm telling you, Pastor, it didn't take. Well, guess what? God says you are. God says you are. Who are you going to listen to today? It's his words that matter most. You might not feel it about yourself. You might not believe it about yourself. But here's the good news today. What you say doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Don't believe your guilty conscience. Believe his righteous words. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son, about the boy who took his, his inheritance and, and from his father and, and went off and, and lived it up. He went to Vegas and he hired all the best dancers and went to all the best parties and he blew it all, right? And then he's kind of stuck in his own sinfulness and his own loss. Uh, and, and he makes this decision. He decides to go home. But do you remember that in the story, he doesn't decide to go to home because maybe God, or I'm sorry, I kind of let the ending go there, didn't I? He didn't decide to go home because maybe my dad will forgive me. Maybe my dad will let me be a son again. Maybe my dad will be happy that I'm home. Maybe my dad will let me move back in. He didn't do that. It was an economic decision. You see, there was no Amazon factory where he was. He, he had no ability to get a job. No one was hiring. He went home because he said, maybe my dad will hire me on as a servant somewhere and at least I won't be homeless any longer. Maybe that's the best I can do. Maybe, maybe, maybe. He wasn't looking for restoration because he didn't think he was worthy of restoration. Do we know what that feels like? He, he wasn't thinking about transformation. He wasn't asking about transformation because he didn't think he was capable of being transformed. He was sitting in the pig pen covered with literally his own filth and the filth of quite a few pigs, right? He didn't think he had any of that stuff coming. You guys know the story though, right? He heads back home and the father sees him. He doesn't even get, you know, he's rehearsing the speech. Uh, uh, I don't think he was even calling him dad. I think, uh, Mr. Martinson, sir, um, I, I just wanted to submit for your request. I saw on Craigslist that you were hiring. And, uh, you know, like I, he's rehearsing the speech. And the dad sees his Uber pull up. I've modernized it. That's what I've done here. Okay. <laughs> the dad sees his Uber pull up and goes running out 
to get him out of the car. And he says, we're going to have the biggest party we've ever had. We're going to have the biggest party we ever had because my son was lost and now he's come home again. He's come home again. Uh, Child of God, do you recognize that that's your story? That's your story. You were lost and you didn't think transformation was on the table. You didn't think forgiveness was on the table. We too often live in this mindset that says, I am stuck and this is just the way it's always going to be. I'm never going to change. He's never going to change. She's never going to change. It's just the way it is. And John says, come on now, who are you going to believe? We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust ourselves. Could we trust God? Be reminded today that in Christ, we have forgiveness, not just for our past. We have forgiveness for our present. I don't know. I just felt like I needed to put that line in in, in my notes this week. Sometimes recognizing that God has covered the sins of my past is academic, but learning to live in his forgiveness in the presence, that's where I struggle. So can I just share that with you? Jesus didn't die to, share, to, to, to take care of or forgive the sins of your past alone. He's forgiving you in the now. He's forgiving the sins of your present. And God is still working powerfully in you. He's still working faithfully in you. Our journey is not yet over. We have not arrived, but on the great, by the grace of God, we are on our way. Amen? We are on our way. And transformation is taking place. We are on our way. Do we remember, recall the very first words that we read of John's this morning? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. You want to know who you are? You have existential questions about the meaning of life and the future and this and that. And John says, don't complicate the matter. Don't complicate the matter. You are a beloved child of God. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. You are a beloved child of God. See what great love he has lavished on. You know what? I I can see it in others. It's easier for me. I think that's maybe why... One of the reasons he's gathered us together, because I, I can see it in Angie. I can see that she's a beloved child of God. I, I got no problem buying that. I can see it in Les. I mean, you're kind of characterless, right? But you're a beloved child of God. I have no problem seeing that. I see it clearly. I see it plain as day, right? I, I, I see it in my brothers and sisters. It's, it's hard for me to see it in myself. Anybody else ever feel that way? See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Amen. On us. That's, that's Jaden over there. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Jaden. See what great love the Father has lavished on Jaden, that he would be called a son of God. That he would be called a man of God. Uh, man, come on now. I don't have any problem seeing that. But when I look around, When I look around, I recognize that what God is doing in the lives of my brothers and sisters, when I see the transformation taking place, maybe that's for me too. Maybe that's for me too. 
Could, could you just share that insight with me as, as we pray together? Father, we recognize, we see, we want to say in faith today that we see that we have not arrived yet. But boy, are we on our way. Boy, are we on our way. We are not who we were apart from you. We are not who we were without you. Uh, the devil is going to come and say, oh, you're the, you're the same loser you've always been. You're the same loser you've always been. But God, no matter how bad I sinned today or yesterday or the day before, I'm not the same loser I've always been because I'm in Jesus now. I'm in Jesus and I'm being transformed. I'm being transformed. I'm being transformed. You're changing my heart. You're changing my life. And I am tripping and stumbling and falling along the way. But God, I'm, I'm going on with this journey. Because I believe what you've said. I believe that there is a destination worth going to. Lord, I pray for each one of us that are uh, together along this journey. It's kind of like we're caravanning or we're carpooling or we're all on the same bus or something. I don't know. But we're looking for the roadmaps along the way. We're looking for the landmarks. We're trying to, are we going the right way? Are we going the right way? Are we going the right way? And you're speaking your word to us. Like that nav system that we've been looking for, that we've been waiting for. You're saying, it's just a few more miles, my child. It's just a few more miles. Look how far you've come. Look how far you've come. And if you don't believe it about yourself, look around at the others on the bus with you. Look how far they've come. Love your brothers and sisters because I'm doing in their lives what I'm doing in your life. And encourage one another all the more as the destination gets closer. There is a faith that I am calling to you, says the Lord. There is a faith that I am calling you to that is greater than, than what you've known before. There is a sanctification that I am preparing for you, that I am working in you, that is greater than what you've known before. There is a cause and a mission and a purpose for your life. There is a healing. Do you hear that today? Do you hear the Spirit saying that today? There is a healing in your life that is greater than what you have experienced before. And it's just a few blocks ahead. It's just a few blocks ahead. Keep going, keep journeying. Don't let anybody tell you that you aren't being transformed. Don't sit around for 40 years and refuse to eat hot dogs and tell the world how much you hate them. You got to do it because I have changed you. I have changed you. Maybe you're just the only one who didn't realize it. Well, hear the word of the Lord today. Jesus said, I called you, I called you by name, my child, and I am changing you, I am transforming you. I am turning you upside down. Brothers and sisters, it, it's not easy, is it? It hurts, it's uncomfortable, but we gotta encourage each other to submit ourselves once again, once more, once more, we're on this journey, we're on this journey. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that he would call us not servants, not underlings, but that he would call us beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, we believe it today. We believe it today. And Lord, where the strength of our own minds, the capacity of our own hearts is insufficient to receive your word, we say, God, stretch us even more that we would receive it in whole and in full. We ask your blessing upon each other this day. with the words of that hymn still echoing in our minds. How great you are. How great you are. How great you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Go with blessing and go with grace. Continue on the journey. We'll see you tonight for the meeting.
Amen.